green space exposure reduces the risk of preterm birth, premature death, and high blood pressure, all of which disproportionately affect people of color. This is literally a life and death issue. Nature is not a nice to have, it's a have to have. It's one of the reasons that I've argued that we should consider this a human right. This year, the CDC's annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey offered a grim outlook for the well-being of young people, and emerging research points to social media as a key factor. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the last two months, in a special five-part podcast series, we've brought together experts, advocates, and school leaders to better understand the impact of social media on teen mental health. Today, in the fifth and final episode of this series, I'm joined by Richard Louvre, best-selling author and speaker to talk about the role of the great outdoors in healthy development and why spending more time outside is key to our physical and mental well-being. Richard Louvre, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So I wanted to start at the beginning of your career as an author of books. What drove you to first write about families and parenting and, and fatherhood? Well, I actually was once a kid. And also, uh, <laughs> I, I had two boys in the 80s. At that time, it seemed like the old roll book had been thrown out. And nobody had written a new one. I mean, how many hours in daycare? Who knew? So I traveled around the country and spoke to about... 3,000 kids and parents and teachers and went into classrooms. That's when a reporter could go into a classroom and interview the whole class. But I looked for the repeating themes. Both parents and kids and teachers were puzzled by something that was happening for which they did not have a description, a word. Why weren't kids going outside much anymore? Even when they were introduced to it, they didn't really want to go out there. This is this is coming up in conversations that you're having in the 90s? In the 80s, late 80s. In the 80s? Yeah. Huh. And um, even kids were puzzled by this. I mean, I, one boy said, uh, he was in elementary school, I think, he said, uh, I prefer playing indoors because that's where all the electrical outlets are. <laughs> and I found that to be a repeating theme. Not only that, but the kids were often very puzzled. You know, that was a time when Lassie was probably still in a rerun somewhere. And they said they watched that and that looked like alien life. They didn't understand it. So it was very troubling to a generation of parents who had spent a lot of time outdoors when they were kids. This wasn't a conversation then much at all because... We didn't have the language. Nature deficit disorder was the kind of corny phrase that ended up throughout the book of Last Child in the Woods. And it caught on, and suddenly people had, you know, a hanger to hang their conversation on. So it's interesting, though, because the 80s and the 90s were what the rise of like Pac Man and that first generation of video games. I mean, like I had Pong as a kid. I was a child in the 80s. Do you think that was what was bringing kids inside? The electronics are only part of it. I mean, it's a big part of it, video games and 
now uh, social media, all of that. It's a huge part of it, but it's not the only part. Sometimes I discourage conversations from focusing only on the evils of technology. You know, anytime that adults want to ban anything from kids using it, that's exactly what the kids want to use more of. We're going to have high tech in our lives, whether we like it or not. And a lot of it I don't like. I mean, the, the whole thing of AI now is very troubling to a lot of people. But uh, it's going to be there. So I have a kind of formula that I developed in The Nature Principle, which is the second book that I wrote, which is more about the society in general and the disconnection from nature, which is the more high tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's a budgeting issue. So it's a balance. Uh, not necessarily a balance. I think we need more in nature than technology. But you have to make such a conscious effort to make that happen. You have to put it on the calendar. You have to put it in the budget. It's not going to happen accidentally anymore. I mean, um, you know, my generation, it was just assumed we would be outside much of the time. Parents didn't have to tell us to go outside. Now it has to be a conscious choice. So you have to consciously budget it. You have to put it on the calendar. You know, if we can put soccer on the calendar, we can put a nature adventure on the calendar. No, I love, I actually love because I do feel, feel like parents like turnkey solutions. And so I like the idea of a tech to nature ratio. What do you think, what do you think that ratio is? The most recent book, which is Our Wild Calling, which is our relationship with other animals, both domestic and wild. And at the end of it, I talk about the reciprocity principle for every acre we take from nature. We need to give at least two acres back. For every dollar we spend on technology in schools, we need to spend at least a dollar, probably two dollars or three dollars on reality, on real life rather than virtual. You're going to have both in the schools, but it, it literally becomes a budgeting issue. When you talk about vitamin N or access to nature as being, you know, to a degree, an antidote to the negative effects of not enough time outside, what qualifies as nature? Because your books, they talk about being outdoors, but they, they also, there's a nod to the fact that some of us have easy access to nature and to the outdoors and others of us do not, you know, it's like kind of, you're living in a concrete jungle. And so do pets in your home mean nature? Do houseplants mean nature? Can you talk a little bit about what fills, you know, people's souls and kind of creates balance between, you know, technology and access to these things? First, that's a difficult question. What is nature? I mean, people have struggled with that for a long time. And I think we need to be forgiving and kind of loose with our definitions of nature. To me, nature has always been when I'm in an environment, and this is personal, when I'm in an environment in which the dominating species are not my species. There is nature in cities, even in the densest urban neighborhood. There's a little bit of nature you can find in terms of species other than our own. Now, it might be the grass between, you know, in the cracks in the sidewalk. It might be in the alley. That little cluster of nature can be a whole universe for, for a child, particularly a small child. 
I bet you had places like that when you were a kid. You didn't have to go to Yosemite. No, absolutely not. How do you think these sorts of messages reach people in the most impoverished parts of cities? And how have you seen groups in those situations advocate for more nature in those parts of our cities? There was research done out of England in 2018. And this looked at all the research that had been done, like involving more than 290 million people of all ages in 20 different countries. And what they confirmed was that it benefits to health, the benefits to cognitive functioning, the benefits, in fact, to social capital, to our bond with each other. But what they also found was that green space exposure reduces the risk of preterm birth, premature death, and high blood pressure, all of which disproportionately affect people of color. This is literally a life and death issue. Nature is not a nice to have. It's a have to have. It's one of the reasons that I've argued that we should consider this a human right alongside the right of nature to be. I want to add here that this is all, this is kind of a new conversation that we're having. And um, Last Child in the Woods was published in 2005. At that time, I could only find 60 studies in the world that dealt in a responsible way with either the deficit of nature in children and adults' lives or the benefits to health, psychological health, physical health, all that, 60 studies. How could something that large have been so ignored by the academic world? And there are now, it's just exploded. It's now kind of a growth industry to research, the, the, particularly the benefits of nature to our health and uh, well-being. There are well over a thousand. I think the last count was 1,200 studies. That's a huge increase in not very many years, and it seems to be increasing in, in its pace. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to note. It's not just a theory that it's kind of proven time and time again that there's all of these advantages to be immersed in nature. In one of your books, you spent a good deal of time talking about ways to connect with nature, You know, specific recommendations for families and kids in terms of what they should do. The most important thing is to be aware of it and not assume that it's going to happen on its own. Uh, and, and that involves putting it on the calendar. It involves in consciously thinking about it. Another is encourage your child to get to know a 10 square foot yard area at the edge of a field or at the edge of a field or a pond or hopefully a pesticide-free garden and do that with them. And don't pretend you have to know everything. You don't have to know the Latin name of every plant to introduce your kids to them. And in fact, I think it's sometimes better when a parent does not know what they're looking at when they show, when they, they and the child, you know, find an insect, find a plant they've never seen before. What happens then is that the child looks in the parent's face and sees the awe and excitement in the parent's face. And that's cool. That's what they remember. They don't remember the Latin name of the insect. There's something called a sit spot. And that can happen in a park or woods, a field, or even in your own backyard, where you go back and you sit and you watch. My sit spot when I was a kid, one of them, 
was I go down into the woods and there was a creek down there. And as I approached the creek, all the frogs would jump in and you'd hear them all splashing. Then I would sit down to the creek, next to the creek and I would wait a long time. And then after a while, pop, pop, the frogs' heads, their noses first would start to appear on the surface of the water. And then I would continue to stay still and watch them. And then I would feel what it is like to be a frog. A lot of this has to do with empathy. You know, there's a thing called critical anthropomorphism. And there's a professor that has been promoting this. And I think it should be used in every school. And that parents ought to know this uh, for themselves, not only for their kids. And the basic idea is if you're going to study a snake, you have to become the snake. Think of all of the hard science that you know about that snake. What's its tongue doing? Science knows about this. The second stage, though, is to use your imagination. Feel what it must be like, perhaps, to be a snake. What, what senses are activated? Is it hungry? What's its story? That's empathy with other living beings. Yeah, that, I mean, that leads me to another question I had about, you, you talk, I think, in your latest book about kids and animals. There were a couple of things that it made me recall. The other day I was walking by the river here in Boston, and um, I noticed two grandparents pushing a little child. And I think she was pre-verbal, but she was kind of signaling to them, to this field of geese, which I'm sure would have gone ignored because they're everywhere right now. But the grandparents rolled the child in her stroller over and she was fascinated. Like like you could tell she was like deeply connected and completely enthralled by the geese. And, and the other example I'll give you is I, I taught in Japan years and years ago. I used to take the little kids out at some point during the day. I remember one day we were out, we were talking in English or we speaking in English while we were looking around and all of a sudden everyone, all these little people, their heads were down in a gutter, looking down the gutter. And I was like, what in the world? And I looked down and there had to have been a hundred fiddler crabs, like just kind of all poking their claws up again and again and again. I was like, oh my God, like I would have never noticed it as the adult, but they were low enough to the ground and we were kind of noticing things around us. I was asking them questions about the environment. It was just amazing to me how much more connected they were to, in both cases, to the vibrations of all of the nature and all of these beings that were around them than, than I was. I wouldn't, I only noticed them because kids noticed them. And you talk a lot about how we lose some of that. But why are kids so much more connected, do you think? This is in us. This is biophilia. This is part of us. It's part of our humanity. You know, one of the reasons why this has so much impact on cognitive functioning, on the ability to learn and create, is because of the senses. The scientists who study the human senses no longer talk about five senses. They talk conservatively about nine or ten. And some of these scientists talk about as many as 30 human senses, most of which we don't know we have. And they all have names, and we have some of the ability of bats to find our way in the dark through echolocation. Um, it's a fascinating area of study. And what are we doing with these kids and with ourselves? We're creating learning environments in which we sit in front of screens and expend a lot of energy trying to block out as many of those senses 
as we can in order to get down to two senses with the idea that we can go anywhere in the internet in the world. If we're spending that much time blocking out our senses, many more than five, that to me is the very definition of being less alive. Now, what parent wants their child to be less alive? What parent wants to be less alive? What teacher wants their students to be less alive? So activating those senses, becoming aware of them through nature, I think is one of the great challenges for schools. And I, in the nature principle, I talk about what I call the hybrid mind. I met a, a guy who teaches people how to become the uh, pilots of cruise ships. We need a few good pilots of cruise ships. And he said he gets two kinds of students. One grew up on the couch playing video games and iPads, all that. He said the other kind of student grew up mainly outside or spending a lot of time outside. He said the first kind of student that grew up on couches playing with electronics, he says, I need those students. I've got a lot of electronics on my ships. But the second kind of student who grew up mainly outside, he says, I need those students too. I need their abilities because they have developed their spatial senses. They can actually sense where the ship is when it's getting too close to the dock, which direction it's going. And he says the other kind of student who grew up on couches, their spatial senses seem to have atrophied. The next thing he said, which was most interesting to me, he said his ideal student would be a student who has both sets of abilities, both the set of ability that comes with the virtual and the set of, set of abilities that comes with the real, with the natural. I call that in the book, The Hybrid Mind. What if that was one of the objectives of education? Yeah. What if it was? Some teachers are doing that. More and more teachers are recognize that. You know, in the pandemic, the pandemic has had a huge impact. Suddenly, the idea of outdoor classrooms doesn't seem so alien because of social distancing. And also because of the mental health benefits of being out there during a time of great stress. One of the issues we haven't talked about, which we should, particularly in terms of mental health, uh, when we're seeing the suicide rates among teens and, and, and all of that go up, medical folks have been talking for a long time, for several, a couple of decades, about what they consider the epidemic of human loneliness, which is a parallel epidemic to COVID, but it started before that. And they've concluded that many of the same diseases that are associated with obesity and smoking are also associated with human loneliness. And more and more of us are lonely and isolated. In Our Wild Calling, I talk about that quite a bit. That's one of the themes of that book about our relationship with animals. During the pandemic, the LA Times asked me to do a piece on this, and I talked to people. The parents started looking out their windows and noticing there were birds out there, even in the inner cities, they there was birds out there. Now they knew there were birds out there, but suddenly they were paying attention to those birds. And the owl that landed in the tree, the kids over time had a relationship with. And people took great solace and comfort in the presence in those animals when they couldn't go outside. So I think there's an additional reason for this epidemic of human loneliness, which is species loneliness. That as a species long ago, 
as long as we've been on earth, human beings have had a deep desire to not feel alone in the universe. It obviously has religious implications. But we have, you know, why else would we look for Bigfoot? <laughs> why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when it may not be a good idea to find it? It's because we have this deep desire as a species to not be alone in the universe. Now, it turns out, as people looked out their window, many of us realized we're not alone in the universe. The more science has been done on how species of animals and plants communicate with each other, the more stunning the results of that research are. There's a great conversation going on all around us all the time, and we don't have to be so lonely. Yeah, and actually, as a parent or as a caregiver, it's really as simple as looking down or looking around or looking up and just work talking with kids about what is in their environment in the moment and maybe even going as deep as how does it affect them, how do they think it affects what they're looking at and starting to understand the balance between the two. In Wild Calling, I say there are at least primarily two habitats. One is that feeling you get when you're looking into the eyes of another animal and you sense something between you and the other animal. We do this with people too, of course, but we also do it with wild animals. It's almost tangible. It's, you can feel it if you pay attention. I call that the habitat of the heart. The, the other habitat is the natural habitat, the physical habitat. We pay a lot of attention to the physical habitat, as we should, to conserving it, protecting it, nurturing it, telling our kids about it. We do hardly anything to do the same with the habitat of the heart. But the deal is, if one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. People are feeling that intensely right now. The, the rise of eco-anxiety, ecological despair is one of the reasons for the growing suicide rate, one of the reasons for the growing sense of, of personal despair is that. We have to turn that around, and we can't only do it with data. That alone won't move people to action. The only thing that really moves people to action is relationship, is love. That's the habitat of the heart. Should our takeaway then as parents be that the hybrid mind is a very important thing and it's what we should be aiming to nurture and grow? Is that is that like a good takeaway from your work for, for parents and educators and maybe doctors? Yeah, I think it is. As I mentioned, data seldom moves people to action. So one of the takeaways is the habitat of the heart, is to talk to our kids and ourselves about our love of the earth, our love of nature. That may sound soft and squishy, but you know, the, as I said, the natural habitat, the physical natural habitat and the habitat of the heart depend on each other. If one goes, so does the other. The other thing is for parents and teachers and anyone who deals with kids who takes them outside is to realize this is not another should that you ought to put on the list of shoulds on your refrigerator door. Any adult who goes outside with a child and experiences nature purposefully 
is receiving all of the same benefits that the child is. Through reduced stress, the cortisol levels become better. The, there are actually one of the reasons that forest bathing is catching on as science has realized that in, in some forests, there are chemicals in the air that calm us to come from the trees. Our depression as a society, our, our ecophobia, as David Sobel calls it, our distress can be relieved if we go out and for a brief moment feel what it's like to be a bird or a frog or a tree. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I find this very hopeful and it's a nice way to end the series, I think, because it's one thing to focus on the problem, but to also know that there are you know so many tools right around us that can help aid in moving kids back to the hybrid mind and to anchoring in the habitat of the hearts. It's very refreshing, I think, and, and gives hope to the whole conversation. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for talking with me today. I really appreciate oh, it. You're very kind. It's Thank really you. nice to meet you, too. You, too. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Richard Lube. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast and this special series. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And if you want more, check out our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee, in which we recap the Boston Public Schools school board meeting and discuss the biggest news impacting Boston's students. Have a great day. Thank you.